CES Wednesday. We have so many cool, diverse people from different backgrounds, different beliefs, different upbringings, and it just keeps growing. I feel it in my I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm a hustler. I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. I'm the queen of the tribe. I am playing whatever role I gotta play. I'm gonna play this game for speed. I ain't going down like no punk. A new Survivor, Wednesday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Welcome to another edition of the Michigan Insider Basketball Podcast. Sam Webb and the man that we focus on in all of these podcasts, providing the great analysis and insight that from a former player perspective, both in college and the pros, and now an analyst uh, for, for the NBA, for college basketball as well, uh, ESPN, Fox Sports Detroit, he does it all. I'm talking about Tim McCormick. Uh, and my friend Tim McCormick, how you doing, Tim? Happy New Year, Sam. I, and I'm I'm really um, I'm really looking forward to the next couple of months. It's college basketball season. Um, love football, but it's 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 over, and there's no more holidays. Um, you know, there's no out of conference play. The Big Ten is balanced, and everybody's capable. I, I was looking at the stats. Thirteen of the fourteen Big Ten teams already have at least one victory, except for Northwestern. And, and I, I do think we learned a lot about Michigan on Sunday against the Spartans. Right. And so, Tim, that's kind of where I want to start. Uh, uh, going Well, I guess where I want to start is going back to your preview. One of the things that you pointed out in, in your kind of analysis of what we would see was the defensive strategy that would be employed against Michigan State and Cassius Winston being very similar to what they've done all season long. I mean, drop coverage has been a a staple for them defensively. And you might recall when you mentioned that as you were going through your breakdown, I sort of broke in, uh, which I try not to do when you're talking, but it, it, it just kind of struck me at the time to to ask you to to kind of is that what we're gonna see, Tim? And you were you were emphatic, yeah, we're gonna see Michigan employ uh, drop coverage against against Cassius Winston. Uh, you know, statistically, the analytics say that 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 is a sound strategy in this game. Though Tim, uh, it it gave Cassius Winston a lot of space, and not only was he more effective than he was against Michigan last year, he was more effective than he's been in any game, hitting a career high thirty two points to go along with with nine assists. Uh, I, I'm curious what you thought of of his performance and just your big takeaways from from that game. Well, for, first of all, nothing but praise for Cassius and the Spartans. Uh, there, there was a lot to like about what they did as a team and how much they're improving. I thought that Illinois was their best game of the year, and they played better against Michigan. So they're they're trending where a lot of people thought they would be, and that's the number one team in the nation preseason. Uh, so here, here's what, what we learned. Michigan defensively was not good enough in their pick-and-roll coverage to beat an elite team on the road. Um, Michigan without their best overall player, Isaiah Livers. And when you think about it, Cassius, with his scoring and his assists, 50 points. Mm-hmm. And, and offensively, Spartan shot 53%. That has a lot to do with defense. Um, Michigan was minus 10 at the foul line, which means that the, the Spartans were more aggressive and Michigan State dominated in transition points. Yeah. So when I, when I look at Cassius, he's one of the best players, not only in college basketball, not only in the Big Ten, but in Michigan State history. And he played the best game of his career. 
Um, but I, I, I do have to say, I don't think he was ever taken out of his rhythm. Yeah. Uh, there, there were too many defensive mistakes and missed assignments. Drop coverage may not work as well against probably the best mid-range player and shooter in college basketball. Um, I thought Teske took three bad fouls, you know, d- decisions that he's got to be, um, you know, more disciplined on. They're, they're a lot better with Teske on the court and, and foul trouble hurt him. And then also 87 points is not good enough to, to, to win very many games. And, and so I thought that, that the, the strategy was sound. Michigan is really comfortable in their drop coverage. They, they tried a, a little bit of triangle and two, um, and I thought that had potential, but there were some missed assignments. And then they also tried hedging the ball screens, and they, they only did it a few possessions. Right. But, but I, um, I, I, just, I just think that the landscape of, of college basketball, um, Michigan's defense was not good enough. And Isaiah would help that. Um, but I, I think that the attention to detail would have been better too. Yeah, I think I think from a player execution perspective, one thing you know they stressed in practice. Look, guys, you you, you got to get back. What we want to be offensively with with how we push the basketball on makes and misses. Michigan State already is. They are one of the poster children for for that style of play. And too often, Tim. You you saw Michigan get get beat down the floor. I mean, one of the one of the you know fundamental pieces of a, of a good defense, your your transition defense. Can you can you match up in transition? And too often we found Michigan either getting beat down the floor or in poor matchups in transition. I had twenty one fat twenty one uh, fast break points for for Michigan State. I'll pin that. I'll hang that more on on the players. That that's mm-hmm. a, that's that's an execution thing. That they have to do, and I'm sure that they'll come out in film study. On the strategy side, I don't want to make it sound like, look, you know, those coaches have forgotten more basketball than than I'll ever know, and certainly the analytics as you as you laid out with with with, with drop coverage and mid range shot and and can that beat you? Those are all sound statistics and reasons for why they've done it and why they've done it with great success. I just feel like. Against this guy, you talk about disrupting his rhythm. I, I don't think you have a chance to really do that if you're giving him that much space coming off of ball screens. Now, again, that's not to say that if you hedge ball screens, you're going to stop Cassius Winston. Michigan was a hard hedge team last year, and he still had success. He can come off a screen and split the hedger. Uh, and his man, we've seen him do that time and time again. He can still be successful, but can you do a better job of limiting him uh, if you if you try to blitz him like that, I just think that against him, not against everyone, against him, you you, you got to try to disrupt him in a, in a different kind of way. They they've beaten Michigan four straight games, and Cassius has been phenomenal. He's been spectacular in all four, averaging twenty four points per game. But but he he made life really easy for Xavier Tillman. Yeah, he did. Um, you know, their their support guys did not put up huge numbers, but they put up enough to beat you. And and so I, I also think that when Cassius is driving, he's not as good going to the left. He's going to look to draw, draw fouls more. He'll look for a step back jump shot. Uh, but there were too many right hand layups. He's not going to miss those. And so the, the other issue that I had with this game, and it kind of segues into our next topic, 
is that Michigan let their 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 you know missing shots hurt their defense, and and that can't happen either. That's another part of 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 being a good defensive player is forgetting a missed shot, forgetting a turnover, and and get get that mindset back. Yeah, I definitely could see that. Now early in the game, Tim, uh, you know they obviously didn't shoot it well from the perimeter all game, but early in the game, you could really see from an offensive perspective, them do a great job uh, inside the arc, very efficient. But to your point, as as the game went on, as those shots uh, didn't continue to not fall from the perimeter, it affected uh, every aspect of their game, including, you know, guys passing up good looks. I mean, I thought that was very evident with 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 a young player, you know, I saw Colin Castleton pass up a couple of 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 looks that, you know, frankly, uh, even if you miss them, I'm sure is I'm sure Juwan is in practice, you know, in film study saying, hey, man, you you're that wide open uh, at, at the top, you you got to shoot that shot, and if you miss it, you miss it. But you know, you're gonna miss every shot you don't take, and they wound up with looks that weren't as good as the ones that he passed up. No, I um. Yeah, yeah, I, you know it's a it's a it's a good time to talk offense, and and I thought that Franz Wagner passed up shots. Um, Eli Brooks has been ultra aggressive, and he was not in this game, and they desperately needed him. But Sam, when when I look at Michigan shooting thirty six percent against the Spartans, that's a trend. That's not an aberration at all. Um, in their last four losses, Michigan has struggled to score, averaging about 61 points per game. It's not horrible, but they're capable of so much more. And in those those four losses, the average is 35% from the field. And, and so here's what I've seen. I've got three thoughts on the offense I want to share with you. Mm-hmm. Number one, Xavier had a lot more space to drive and create last year. And, and the reason is really obvious. He had Iggy and Jordan Poole and Charles Matthews, plus Isaiah Livers. None of those four players played. And now Xavier's the featured scorer. And, and as the top creator, the defense is so focused on him. And they don't want him driving and passing for open shots. They want him taking shots himself. Six for 18 is a lot of shots for Xavier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, you know? it is. And, and he still played well. I mean, he had eight assists and a couple of turnovers. That's, that's not bad at all. But Michigan is better when he's the facilitator. And, and, and that's something that, you know, I, either other people are going to have to emerge or they're going to have to run more sets because I don't, I don't think Michigan is best when, when Xavier Simpson is taking your most shots. No, I think it's a great point. Now, one of the one of the things that I liked about X's performance in, in in this game offensively was, you know, Michigan State did what every team uh, has has tried to do this season, and they did it effectively for the most part. Is that you know they jump his right hand uh, mm-hmm. and try to deny him uh, going to his strong hand, and, and so one of the things that I said in a, in a in a prior podcast is look, you know, he's going to have to get more effective going left. I'm not saying that he couldn't go left. He just has to become more effective going that way. And I felt like in the first half, especially as man, you know, X to his left, X to his left, X mm-hmm. left hand layup. I mean, he, he really took advantage seemingly of the leverage that they were giving him to his left 
even to the point of, you know, going to his left, drawing the defense and creating offense rebound opportunities. You know, penetration is penetration. And so I like that he he adapted in that way. Has to become more effective at it. But as a as a positive takeaway, if we're trying to do, as we, if we're trying to grab anything from from this, that was one piece that I liked about what he what he did yesterday. But you're right. Even with that, 18 shots from from Xavier Simpson is not really going to be a great recipe, a uh, great recipe for Michigan. Which is why, you know, when he does find you know guys open or you do get an open look, even if it's not X finding you, you got to take them. Uh, and yep. to, like you said, uh, you know, I just pointed out a couple with with Colin Castleton because I can remember, uh, you know, X getting the getting the ball back and you know, looking like he had to do. All right, now I got to figure something out. Can't pass those kinds of shots up when you're when you're limited like Michigan is when it comes to guys that can create. Yeah, it's a lack of confidence for sure. And and by bringing up Castleton, it, it leads me to my second observation about Michigan's offense. It has to do with post-play, and, and it's becoming more of a plus. John Teske has emerged as an effective low-post scorer, and he got off to a fast start versus Michigan State. He had three opportunities in the first half, especially in the first 10 minutes, and he scored on all three, and then they went away from him. I, I thought that Austin Davis was effective. Yes, I thought was. Brandon Johns was, was, was excellent. And, and I just believe if they get doubled – it's a good tool to use to facilitate the offense. And so I do think that that, that was probably Michigan's most productive post game against a good opponent. And, and it could have been even more, you know, I, I feel like I don't want to sound like uh, it, this is, you know, we're broken records, but I just, you know, when they struggle like that, as opposed to being as persistent with your perimeter shots, and this maybe sounds kind of counter, what I just said, you don't want to pass up open looks. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's a difference between, uh, you know, passing up open looks and, and forcing shots when when, when maybe you're better served, like you said, uh, you know, if, if you're going to force some action, try to force it on the inside where you've, you've had more success. So you throw it in to, to Austin Davis, you know, he hits you with a drop step in reverse. It's like, okay, you, you, had, you had Brandon Johns kind of muscle it up in, in traffic for an and one opportunity. I just feel like in in a at, at a time where you know you're limited with perimeter creators, you know, your 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 best options are are going to be in the po- in addition to John Teske. Now I think he was affected, you know, you got to take him off the floor when he's in foul trouble. So that that is a that was a big issue in yesterday's game, a reason why maybe you go away from it some, but I say, you know, even if it's if it's Brandon Johnson, I know he hit a big three in this game, but I, I just think in the paint, when they're especially when they're struggling, if you're going to be belligerent somewhere, I think that's where you got to be belligerent, trying to get it more in the paint, in the post. Uh, Sam, last week you made a really astute observation where you said one of the keys is to make Cassius Winston work at both ends of the court and go at him. Well, it goes for Xavier Tillman. He's their second-best player. And listen, he had big numbers across the board in all areas except for one. He had 20 points, 11 rebounds, three assists, six block shots. He's not even a shot blocker. Mm -hmm. The one area he didn't have big numbers, personal fouls. He only had one foul. You know, you've got to make him work more. And and if if you can get him to get a second, third foul early, your job gets a lot easier. 
So, yeah. So, so the first one is about Xavier. The second one is about post play. The third one, which I think is, is of massive importance. Michigan has now lost four of seven games, three straight on the road. And I want to talk about three point shooting at Louisville, three for 19 at Illinois, three for 18 at Michigan state, five for 23. Now, one bad game, you could call that an aberration, <laughs> yeah. but three's a, a disturbing trend for sure. And in the last three road games, Michigan from three is 11 for 60. That's 17%. So I, I rewatched the Michigan-Michigan State game this morning, and I really focused on the three-point shooting. I, I specifically wanted to look at the pre-shot work, which is – getting your feet set, getting your toes on the line, being on balance, having your hands ready, some of the fundamentals. Also, I looked closely at how the passes were. You know, Are they on target, on time? And for the most part, I thought they were. Um, but the, the, the most underrated part of three-point shooting, which I think Michigan was woefully inadequate with, is holding your release after you shoot the ball, You know, fully committing to the shot. And, and and this is this is a, a big problem. Michigan missed 18 times. I counted 13 of their 18 misses. The shooter either left early to get back on defense probably, or they had no balance when they landed. And and I believe that to be a really good three-point shooter, you know, Ray Allen, Del Curry, Reggie Miller, all those guys had something in common. When they shot, they had unbelievable balance. Um, I don't put Steph Curry in that list because he's just freakishly good. He, right. You know, he shoots off balance and doesn't matter. But not many people have his ability. And and the, the best analogy I could use, Sam, is, you know, when, when an Olympic gymnast comes off the balance beam or the vault, they always talk about stick the landing, you know, where your, your feet land together, same spot. And, and that's what is really important in three-point shooting, I believe. And, and if, if anybody wants to go back and watch, Michigan's three-point shooters shot the ball, and before the ball hit the rim, they were already going back on defense or they had lost their, 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 def- or their balance integrity. And you just can't shoot that way. So it's three straight games. And I think that's an area that needs to improve. Yeah. Uh, you know, one, one time is an aberration. Like you said, now, now it's a pattern. For yep. sure, and I is part of it being on the road, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but you're, but you're, but you're right. You're right. I mean, the the fundamentals of of shooting is, you know, that those are are things that have been drilled in them for for years. I make a reference to uh, to our our next guest, uh, John Beeline, who is is now the Cleveland Cavaliers head man. You had an opportunity to 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 chat with him, Tim. Well, I um I, I've never hidden my admiration and respect for John Beeline, and it's so hard not to like the guy. Uh, one of the best people I know, and he really loves Michigan. And you know, before we started the interview, we talked about the massive challenge to to build that winning culture in the NBA from the ground floor. I, I think it's kind of ironic that Michigan has ten wins so far. And so do the Cavaliers. They're 10 and 26, though. Um, but he will be successful. He's an excellent teacher. And so many of his offensive principles that he taught at Michigan 
have been added to NBA offenses over the last 12 years. He's truly a visionary, and I think everybody's going to like listening to his message. All right. Here is Tim McCormick, this time with former Michigan basketball coach and current Cleveland Cavaliers head man, John Beeline. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. The Michigan Basketball Insider Podcast is elated to speak with John Beeline, the greatest coach in Michigan basketball history. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Tim. Tim, pleasure. Anytime we can talk Michigan basketball, I'm all for it. So there are so many amazing memories that I have. I can only imagine what it's like for you from where you took over, what you built. Can you share with us, the, the Michigan fans and myself, some of your favorite memories? Well, you know, it was 12 years. And, and I think, b- believe it or not, some of the favorite memories were the growth times, were the, were the times where, you know, um, we, got, we, we got to a point where we were winning games. We won some games. I can, I'm thinking about one at Minnesota that we won when we, we needed it to get to the NCAA tournament in 2009. Manny Harris hit a big shot from the corner. Uh, that, that was like big mo- – these weren't like everybody would think. I'd say, oh, the Final Fours and all that. There was moments in games where I knew we were starting to get there. Um, I, again, when we, when we went, um, we started out the league like one and six or something in, in year, year four. And we had all these freshmen, Tim Hardaway, all these guys were out there, were freshmen. And we went to Michigan State and won. And where I think that the, it, it did not look good that we were going to ever win there. And we won there. That, those, those, were, those were big away games. I think of all those away games that we won during that time that were just huge for the development of the team, a belief in, yeah, this stuff is going to work. And then gradually it got to the point where uh, – if we didn't get past the Sweet 16 going forward, we were probably going to be disappointed. That was a good problem to have. You mentioned Michigan State. Any favorite Michigan State, Michigan memories? Oh, I think I think any of those games were so terrific. He had such a great coaching coaching staff up there. Tom is is in a class by himself, but I think he's had such such uh, such consistency as his staff. I, I think that's way underrated. What all of his his guys do. Um, I, I think I think any of our 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 wins up there obviously were good, uh, and then you, you can't forget the the Trey Burke steal uh, against Keith Appling at our place. That was I've never heard an arena so loud go so quiet for one second. When he stole the ball, there was a a second where everybody just like looked and didn't know what it did. It actually really happen, and then he's laying it in, and then this eruption. Uh, but they're just really, really great games. Uh, when Zach Novak guarding Draymond Green, <laughs> it's just he did a great job on Draymond every single time. Those were great moments. I've got a smile on my face now, too. You, you mentioned Hardaway and Zach Novak and Trey Burke. Uh, a couple of our podcast guests so far have been Isaiah Livers, John Teske, Duncan Robinson, Mo Wagner, to name a few. Um, you have been great with player development. I'm just curious of the players I mentioned, or maybe somebody else, who improved the most, really surprised you from day one to where they ended up as a player? Mo would have to be one of the top of that list because there was, there was moments when Mo was uh, a freshman uh, that you know I would say he's going to be a pro, and then there was many more moments when he was a freshman. I was thinking, 
what was I thinking when I gave him a scholarship? Because he was just sort of trying to figure things out. And then it, it all as as he went on, he he was not rebounding at all his first two years. And then all of a sudden, his third year, he's rebounding like crazy. He's running offense. He's 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 uh, be, became a much better defender. And now when I look at him now, I mean that's in, in, incredible. And then I think Duncan Robinson is the other story where his best basketball was truly in front of him, and what he's doing now is amazing. And he, you know, a lot of people would give us uh, probably a lot of credit on that. No, that that credit deserves that young man, and and how hard he has worked, and what Miami Glenn Rice saw a lot. In Duncan, Glenn Rice loved Duncan Robinson when nobody else loved him, and Glenn was like, I'm sure he convinced the Heat to, to sign him, and now Eric has just done a great job, and his game has taken off. You mentioned Duncan and Mo. I um, I wonder what it's like to coach against them. Now you know their games as well as anyone. You you probably could game plan against them. What has it been like to play against not only those two but all of your other former players? Well, this is really funny. First of all. When, when we played against Mo, it's only been one time. You know, we were just running our traditional sets that we run, but for, for they happened to go be going at Mo, where you do go at most centers with some type of pick and roll. I, the, I didn't hear all the language that was coming out of it, but I, I, I understood Mo was, like, upset that I was running plays at him, and it wasn't intentional at all. So we had a good moment there where we were talking to each other during the game. And uh, so that was really funny. And then Duncan Robinson, I mean, he, he hit nine threes against us, uh, or maybe it was ten, uh, down in Miami. Uh, we could not guard him. He was moving so well off the ball. I think that's what Miami's really done with him is they put him into old-fashioned motion where he's really good, where I probably didn't have him in enough motion. I wish I would have probably done more of that, but we did all right. <laughs> we did make it a championship game. We did all right. As you talk about the, the challenges of, of coaching in the NBA, what have been the biggest differences between college and NBA so far? I, I think that you, the lack of practice time that you can have uh, and really you have to allow, especially with our good young players, to get better in games. And that's going to – in order for them to get better, you're going to lose some games because they're out there and they're still learning. They didn't learn in practice. they got to learn in games. I think that's been the biggest adjustment when we have a day in between games um, – that you, you, we were at, we practiced for 30 minutes today and with a day in between games because we got back-to-backs coming up. And I think that that's the other thing. When back-to-backs, you'd like to, okay, we just played two games. What can we learn from them? You need to take that day off or you're going to lose your team after a back-to-back. So you probably had more back-to-backs back in the day, but uh, that, that's the biggest adjustment for me. Coach, we played four games in five nights. So can you imagine <laughs> coaching that? Uh, I'd be curious to hear, was there a moment this year where, you know, you were coaching against so-and-so that, that you thought, I can't believe I'm here. This is amazing. Who was that guy? I don't know if there's anybody. Let me just think for a second. But I think that um, when we were playing um, down, I think probably down in San Antonio, I had never even met Greg Popovich before. Um, and He's one of the few guys that, that has probably has, has more game experience than, than I do with some 1,400, 1,300 games. And, uh, that, that was, and he couldn't have been more gracious uh, about, uh, in that game. Uh, but as far as a, a coaches, and then there's been so many really good players 
that and I'm really impressed with some of the younger players how good they have been all the time. But I I, I coached against Carmelo in his first uh, in one in his first season at Syracuse, and now it's it's a long time after that, and uh, he was still playing with Portland. Uh, so we had a, we we. I think we, we uh, acknowledged each other in that game, remembering probably back to his freshman year at Syracuse. Coach, from earlier conversations this year, I know that you, you love and miss your, your players at Michigan. And, and after the Oregon game, you shared how difficult it yeah. is for you to watch. Can you talk, yeah. talk a little bit about how, how, um, how you handle watching Michigan yeah. basketball? I think that this is something that I thought I'd be really comfortable with. Well, I'm just going to talk about my own family that watching uh, Patrick, Mark, Andy, Shauna, watching those four play any sports was not comfortable for me. It was just, it was like, I, I, I wanted them to do so well, uh, get bothered when, when things didn't go well. And uh, it, it, it was not comfortable for me. And I feel the same way about uh, the Michigan team. Obviously rooting for them, I want them to do really well. But I, I chose to listen to the Oregon game as opposed to watching it. Uh, and it's 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 I, I just love that group right there, is very much I think like our our final four group as far as their personalities, you know that the uh, you know Xavier is like is Muhammad Ali uh, Abdul Rahman a little bit you know John is Mo Wagner a little bit they're just guys you just love to coach they get so Isaiah Livers was such a pleasure to coach and you want them to do so well and frankly it's been hard for me I can't tell you why it is. But it's hard, but I am rooting for them every minute. I'll be rooting for them hard uh, very soon when they're when they, they're really into the Big Ten schedule big time with a couple of big games against Michigan State. Maybe next year you'll be able to watch. I, 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 I know I'm always going to root for them, Tim. I'm so freak, I'm so damn blue. I just love I love those 12 years. Kathleen and I just loved it in Michigan. And so we're all, we're all in all the way. And um, we, we just we wouldn't replace those 12 years for anything. Got a couple fast break questions to end things today. Uh, favorite restaurant in Ann Arbor? Oh, it was pro- probably where we ate the most was probably Pisano's. We didn't go there a lot, but we were takeout champions at going to Pisano's uh, on Washtenaw and uh, really good, great food there. Best player you coached at Michigan? Can never answer that one. <laughs> a lot of just look at. And just look at the uh, all the guys we got in the NBA, Tim. You know, you were in you were during a run, and there was great runs in the '80s and '90s of guys in the NBA. That decade that we just had of guys being successful and, and staying in the NBA, uh, any one of them on any day I could pick is as uh, the best player. I didn't think you would answer that question. <laughs> uh, what about the toughest venue to play in the Big Ten? Oh boy, I, I to me, to me. Um, both Purdue and Indiana just seemed like they were they were ones where, that it was the loudest uh, and and almost and intimidating at times and we won a few times there uh, but that those were really tough obviously Michigan State it speaks for itself but there was something about the noise level um, at both Indiana and Purdue in some of our big games was off the charts. What does it take to be a great coach? I think a, a great patience and understanding of teaching the game. I think those are great things that you. I, I always say to uh, to young coaches when they ask me, you're, you, after every game, uh, watch the video. You're never as good as you looked, and you're never as bad as you looked. And you might say things in that locker room or say things the next day in practice 
that probably aren't may, may not be true. And you're going to lose your team if you do that. So I'm very reserved after games about about making our guys feel too good about a win, or also making t- feel too bad about a loss. Look at the look at the video. The video never lies. What are your thoughts on on the job that Juwan Howard is? I know you guys have spent time. You're a mentor to him. S- some thoughts on that? No, I just I love. Uh, first of all, you got to go back with 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 what. Uh, uh, Saadi meant to me as an assistant coach. He was tremendous through that whole transition, won a lot of games, right? And then Phil Martelli is one of my best friends in coaching. So when he got here, when he, when he chose those two, I knew he was in the right direction. But Juwan used to come in and talk basketball with us and was so thirsty to be a great coach. I have no doubt this is going to work. I had no doubt from the very beginning that he wants to be a coach. He's got a passion for the university. So proud to have him there and so happy to see his the team. And, um, and glad, again, I hope that he feels we really left him with great young men. Forget about the talent level because I think it is good. He's proven that with his wins. But that he, I hope that Jawan goes out in that lock, uh, that court every day and feels as blessed as I did while I get to coach these guys again for two hours. Coach, thank you so much. The Michigan Basketball Insider Podcast is thrilled to have you join us. We want you to, to take the Cavaliers as far as you can. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Tim. We're back here on the Michigan Insider Basketball Podcast. Sam Webb with the man, uh, Tim McCormick. And, Tim, you know, great insight, as always, from the interview with, uh, with, with John Beeline. Look, you, you know when you step into a losing situation – uh, with, with with pros, the, the buy-in factor might take a little time, uh, which it is. But you know, he's 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 time tested and mother approved, so to speak. You feel like if they give John Beeline, uh, you know, time to instill his vision, they're going to have some success there in Cleveland. I agree with you, and the 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 the, the challenge is that the average salary in the NBA, the average, is approaching ten million dollars per year. And and so it's hard when the players are actually paid more than the coach. But it, it's really indisputable that John Beeline is the best coach in Michigan basketball history. And I, I found it interesting. I found it refreshing that he couldn't watch his sons play when they were in college. And he feels the same about Teske and Simpson and Brooks and on and on. And, you know, when when I also I talked a little bit about the rivalry with Michigan state after the interview and how he got a vote of confidence about his job from Dave Brandon, the athletic director at the time, he was really choked up and emotional, just reliving those, those memories. It was special to him. And I'm, I'm just so pleased that he joined us. He, uh, he was a great addition for sure. Oh yeah. Tim, I remember I'm trying to, was it the, was it the 20, 11 was it in 2011 i think it was where hey man there there were fans that were like look this isn't working and they went up to east lansing it was the game where 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 zach where zach novak kind of went nuts on his on his guys Mm -hmm. on the sideline Mm -hmm. yeah and and it was that was the turning point for for michigan in that rivalry that was the turning point for michigan in the big 10 that was the turning point for michigan under john beeline that game kind of shifted things into overdrive because they found that that belief that they could really get it done. I remember Bakari Alexander talking to him before that game. He said, you know, we're going to go up there and we're going to win this game. You know, it starts uh, with the belief heading in. And 
Uh, you had to have some some guys really, uh, you know, really take that that emotion and that buy in to the court, that belief to the court, and they did that day. And the rest, as they say, uh, is history with under John Beeline here during his tenure as Michigan's basketball coach. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. that that's a great memory for sure. And what I remember is that Michigan State had been out toughing Michigan every single game, and Zach Novak and Stu Douglas, and you know they they were. They were undersized, but they they brought great energy, and and that really was the turning point. Yep. All right. So one thing we didn't really see from John Beeline, and as you know, you saw him, you saw him nurture toughness. You saw him. One of the things, one of one of the things I love about John Beeline, I used to always talk about. You need more dogs. You need more dogs. And then all of a sudden, I start hearing John Beeline use that dog analogy with his team, which I always thought was funny, but but well placed because you got to have those dogs on your team you got to have that tenacity that where you where you match the opponent one place where John Beeline kind of kind of broke that off though is he really didn't get into officials like we see for instance Tom Izzo get into officials you know there was a line when if John Beeline got teed up Tim you know like a like a major occurrence like you know something something's happened in the world where it got to show it has to show up on on sports center that john beeline got teed up here we are in Jawan howard's first matchup with michigan state and he catches a tee I, i'm curious did that stand out to you is there any significance to that in your eyes hey, there was uh, he came on the court and the the obvious thought is he thought Austin Davis had had been fouled and there was no call. Um, it, it turns out that it was a, a very astute move on Juwan's part because, first of all, he stopped the Spartans' fast break. And and actually, Cassius made a three. Um, that that would have blown the roof off the place. And so they, they took that off the board. They gave Juwan the tee. He sent a message to his players that I'm, I'm fighting for you guys. And, and, and that was really good. But I think it was a lot more important than that. Um, it, it's easy to focus on the Austin Davis no-call. But if you look back at the 15-minute mark, Cassius Winston made back-to-back threes. And then Kyle Arns made a three. And then Cassius made a third three. And, and something needed to happen. It, it was really a calculated gamble. And it doesn't always work. It didn't actually turn things around here but i liked it because you know the, the the a lot of times we see coaches that are just non-stop yelling at officials every call and they're you know confrontation with their players and i don't get that sense with juan you know when he gets upset when he raises his voice i i get the the feeling he's more of a teacher and a motivator and and you can tell the players like him and respect him. You know, after after the game last night, I talked to one of my buddies, Bill Raftery, who called the game. And and he was at practice the day before, and he couldn't stop talking about Juwan and his passion and his love of Michigan. He um he 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 thought that the practice was really insightful because Juwan was out there banging and working and sweating with his big men. That gives you a lot of accountability with your guys. And he thinks that Raftery thinks that Juwan can be t- become you know what what he would he I think he termed like an all time great and it's just not the recruiting which is is so impressive but the wealth of knowledge and the communication skills so it's really good to hear that yeah I I definitely one of the things I like 
Tim, is I, I feel like, you know, I, I feel like when it comes to uh, officiating, look, they're, they're, they're humans. I make, this, I make this point all the time. Look, it's not like the, the only humans on the floor are the players and the coaches. The, 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 the officials are, are subject to, to influence as well, whether it's the, the venue and the atmosphere. Why do, why do home teams statistically – you know, get more calls, get better calls at home than they do on the road. Because I think a part of it is officials are influenced. So I think there's something to, you know, kind of lobbying with with, with officials, kind of letting them know, look, I'm over here too. Now, I'm not saying that every coach needs to be that way. Every coach needs to do that. Uh, But for a coach whose wheelhouse that's in, you know, if if that's in – and uh, Jawan Howard's kind of coaching DNA to kind of get after officials a little bit. I welcome that uh, because I do think that to to balance that equation against a, a guy like a Tom Izzo who who was all over. He's one of those guys that's all over officials, like you said. I think a lot of them are often intimidated uh, to the point where they they might skew the whistle his way a bit more. Uh, and if you are if you are one of those coaches that can can kind of give a little bit too and let them know that, hey, you can't, you can't just walk over me. I think that's functional uh, for, for a coach that's, that's able to do that. That's one of my takeaways from what we saw Jawan Howard do on Sunday. And to add on to that, the players love to see their coach fighting. There, there's no doubt. And, and I, um, I, I, I go back to when Jawan got the job, and you probably had some of this too. I've got some good friends that are really smart Michigan basketball, Michigan State basketball fans, and they were thrilled when Jawan Howard was hired. They they thought that that you know Tom Izzo it would be a, a huge mismatch, and 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 Jawan just didn't have the experience to be able to compete with his recruiting and the way he's coached so far. I don't think that anybody is questioning that Jawan Howard has a big-time future with Michigan. Yeah, absolutely. I, just a very, very brief a brief moment before we get into opponent previews, because you mentioned recruiting, uh, and got to give some some attention to Michigan picking up, you know, another top 100 player, a, a four-star a four star guy, uh, a, a combo forward, as I call him, Terrence Williams out of Gonzaga Prep in, in, in D.C. When we mentioned him, Last month, Tim, I compared I, – I shared what a, a scout told me about his game. He said, you know, I kind of compare him from a Big Ten standpoint to a, a Lamar Stevens. Maybe not as skilled mm-hmm. on the perimeter mm-hmm. as a Lamar Stevens, but a guy with, with time on task, with more nurturing of his game, maybe could be that. Maybe could be more comfortable on the perimeter over over time. So, to me – this is part of that that mix, that dynamic. If you're a Jawan Howard, as you yes, you target more, more five stars, more one and done types. So you know you got a commitment from Isaiah Todd. You're you're one of the finalists for a Josh Christopher. You mix in though those those three and four year players like a Terrence Williams. That you know once you get once you get through the one and one and dones or two and dones. Now those those three or four year players are ready to step in and lead the way, uh, you know, for the for the next rung or the next ride, if you will. I think that Terrence Williams is an excellent piece to the puzzle for Michigan. And Terrence, 
to me, is the most underrated component in this recruiting class, especially since there's been talk that Isaiah Todd may not come to Michigan. I mean, he hasn't signed his letter of intent. I expect him to come, but you just never can be sure. There's been talk about Australia or different things. So that's a, a really good insurance policy. Plus, I think he has great toughness. He's probably the toughest guy in this recruiting class. Um, he He's a leader. I, I watched him play at the top 100 camp. I know his high school coach very well. So he has been held to to, to be an accountable player, uh, toughness on the defensive end, being a, a, a good teammate and helper. I, I think that Terrence is, is going to be a really good player. Will he be an all Big Ten caliber player? Who knows? But the, the, the ingredients are there. He has been well mentored, and and you know you um I always like the, the statement success leaves footprints, mm-hmm. and and when you um when, when you look at Terrence Williams at the end of his career, th- there's a lot of really important pieces that are are leading up to him being a really good player down the road. Yeah, and, you know I like that 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 saying you just offered up because the success on the recruiting trail. Uh, is I think reaping positive dividends with the trend line with with other recruits, namely a uh, Josh Christopher. I got a chance to to talk to his dad over the weekend, and we're gonna have, you know, we're gonna have one or or both of the Christophers on the on the podcast here uh, at some point. But one of the things he said to me that really stood out is he said, "Look, we can see that people players are buying into the culture. Now you can see that on the court with the current team." But you can also see it in the recruiting class with Hunter Dickinson joining up. And now, you know, fresh off his decommitment from Georgetown, he took one visit. And this was one of the things that, that kind of stood out to me, Tim. I didn't think there was going to be a lot of haggling with, with, with Michigan with, with Terrence Williams. It was going to be one of those deals like, hey, we really like you. If you come in on this visit and you really like us, then let's let's get this done. And I think that mm-hmm. that was – I think that assertiveness was a part of – was a part of kind of consummating the, re- the relationship. But if you don't have that that belief in that culture, if you can't see, feel, and touch that as a recruit or the family, uh, then you don't get those commitments. Once you do, though, you pick up Hunter, you pick up Terrence, a guy like Josh Christopher sees that. His, his dad sees that, and it kind of helps you with them too. It's like, hey, wait, if that guy's buying in and that guy's buying in, it, maybe what we saw, maybe what we felt on the visit, that, that's real. That's that's confirmation that what we saw and what we felt on that visit is real. So it's I, I think it's really helping Michigan in the in the Josh Christopher race. I'm not ready to you know go out there and say, yeah, they're going to get him. But I certainly feel like their chances have improved uh, significantly since the visit by by virtue of 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 just how how good a pitch they made while he was here, how good they've they've been on the floor. And now, how good they've been on the recruiting trail as well. A couple of follow-up points. I found found it interesting that Terrence Williams is really looking for mentorship. And he wants to get to the league. Who are the two coaches he committed to? Patrick Ewing <laughs> right. at Georgetown and yeah. Juwan Howard at Michigan. And to follow up on, on Josh Christopher, I don't know where that's going to go. It's you know It just seems like family ties are always very important. But if somehow... Michigan could land him. Duke or, or North Carolina or Kentucky may have the number one rated class, but from a need and necessity standpoint, I, I think that Juwan Howard has probably been selling 
the benefits to the Christopher family of having another Fab Five in Ann Arbor <laughs> right. and, 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 and yeah. talking about the, the fact that the Fab Five worked in conjunction and they made each other better and, and it was fun for them. And so I, um, I think Michigan has a fighting chance for Josh Christopher. You're absolutely right. Uh, and it's going to be one to look for and definitely look out for him uh, here him here on the podcast. I, I, I think another big key for, for Michigan as they try to win that race is can they maintain the you know the, the distinction between them and the teams they're competing with on the floor? Uh, you know, Michigan, even though they've hit a bit of a skid here of late, you know, among the teams they're competing with, so Arizona State, Missouri, UCLA, I don't think that there's there's no question, uh, you know, who's faring the best on the floor right now. So if, if Michigan can maintain that or or grow that even more, I think that is another, you know, really positive factor for Michigan in the race for, for this kid. If you can see, like, look, you know, the odds that we can get in there and, and win and be successful in what is likely to be my only college season, you know, if the odds are greater at Michigan, I think that just helps their cause even more. Did um did Josh already visit or does he have one planned? He already visited. He took his official visit already. Now that's that the, the, yeah, that's uh, went great. <laughs> I mean, they had a terrific, a terrific visit. Uh, again, you talk about seeing and feeling the culture. I think he, I think he really loved the dynamic among among the staff members. I think you know they call. They call uh, they call Phil Martelli the Godfather coming out of the visit, you know. Really like the 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 mix the mesh between between uh, he and Jawan Howard. And one of the things his dad said to me is like they, they sense no egos among the coaching staff, which is you know the ego. And you heard Phil Martelli say this to us, Tim. He kind of he kind of confirmed and said you know their ego is an aspect of coaching. And he said exactly right. But can you keep it in check? Can it not be the overriding factor on a staff, you know, where it's got to be my way and I tune everyone else out, I tune out all input. And they sensed that that wasn't an issue uh, here at Michigan. I think that was a big deal. Uh, and, and, and so I, I just feel like the, the visit, it, it took them to a place of real contention as opposed to just being a toss-in. And now it's going to be about, can you, in, at least in my opinion, can you maintain the distinction uh, on the floor where you can show and they can legitimately feel like, hey, if I go to Michigan, we're going to have a, a much better chance of being successful next year than I would at any other place. Man, I, I'm fired up, Sam. I think without even trying, we just had a recruiting roundup moment. <laughs> we, we did, man. And, and, and that leaves us with what time we have left to focus on previewing the next couple of, of, of opponents for 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 Michigan. And, you know, Tim, one of the things that kind of stands out to me as we look around the Big Ten, we, we talk about how deep it is, how many teams can can uh, make the tournament or are likely to make the tournament this year. Got to pause and, and really talk about the job being done by a guy like Matt Painter. I mean, year, mm, after, yes. year after year, they lose guys and you feel like, Ah, uh, this is gonna be the year where the Boilermakers really fall off, uh, and then they come right back and they're in the mix. Now I know they're coming off a re a really bad, uh, you know, shooting and scoring performance, but on balance, by and large, you look at 
what they have been this year. And I think you'd have to say that the Purdue Boilermakers are exceeding many expectations. They have. I'm a big fan of Matt Painter. And, and you know, after Michigan has, has lost four of their last seven, Purdue at Chrysler on Thursday is critical if Michigan wants to remain, um, you know, in the race, in the Big Ten. And they, they cannot afford to fall three games behind Michigan State in the loss column. So the Boilermakers, to me, are hard to figure out. They, they beat defending champ Virginia by 29 in November and held them to 40 points. That was an eye-opener, but they also lost a horrible game to Nebraska. Uh, the key guy to me is Matt Harms, and he had 26 in a win versus Minnesota. He, he's playing the best ball of his career, but I do think that John Teske matches up really well with him, uh, and that's got to be what I would consider a must-win for Michigan, especially because they're going on the road this weekend to play Minnesota. And and they're coming off in a bit. We talk about how bad Michigan has been at times shooting basketball, uh, Tim. I mean, gee whiz, Sunday. <laughs> Purdue scored 37 <laughs> points in the game. Not in yeah. a half. They lost 63-37 to 37 at Illinois. Why you want to credit Illinois and, and their defense that day? Just a horrific shooting game for, for, for Purdue. So this is a team that can have, uh, obviously, can have some, some shooting woes too. But you know they're always tough and physical defensively. You got a versatile guy in, in Matt Harms. I know uh, folks here in the state of Michigan know Trevion Williams uh, really well. They can still kind of bully you around at times or try to bully you around at times in in, in the post. So uh, this is a, this is going to be a knockdown dragout for a couple of teams, like you said, that if they want to remain in contention, both teams, both teams are, are going to need to show up and be counted in this contest. Yeah, I feel really good about Michigan in this game because of the fact that Jawan Howard has their attention, right? One and two in the Big Ten right now, coming off an emotional loss. They will be ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. And then from there, uh, you talk about teams kind of exceeding expectations a bit, uh, Tim. Uh, we talked a little bit about about Minnesota earlier in the year when we did our preview, uh, and it was kind of in the aftermath of what was arguably – dare I say the biggest win in Richard Pitino's uh, career there at Minnesota, the the upset of, at the time, number three Ohio State, uh, beat them by double digits. Marcus Carr had a huge game. And what was coming out party of sorts in, in that contest, you know, just bombing all over the, from, from three, getting to the rack. He was just unstoppable uh, in that contest. When you consider that the Gophers are only eight and six, you'd say, well, they're, they're, they're not very good. Well, they beat Ohio State. Right. That, that, that tells me a lot. And the, the matchup in the middle, Teske and Oturo, is a key battle. One of those guys is going to get in foul trouble, and I think that the one who stays out of foul trouble is going to be around to help their team win. Uh, Patino wants to play really fast, and so Michigan's going to have to keep their turnovers low, probably 12 or less. And, and maybe the most important key, we haven't seen it in a while. And what I'm talking about is Michigan in a fast game, in a hostile environment, the barn gets really loud. Can Michigan make threes? Mm -hmm. I don't know if they can. We haven't seen it. But but a 2-0 week will put Michigan right back in the race. Yeah, uh, and this is a game uh, where this is a, this is a, a, a team. You mentioned Oturo beating you up. 
uh, in the post. Marcus Carr is a guy that can can get his own offense. Uh, you know, can get to the rack, can shoot from the perimeter. You got you got a sharpshooter and Gabe Kalsher. Uh, you know, this is a team that could come at you with some with with some balance. So, uh, you know, you, you don't know what you're going to have from Michigan offensively uh, in this game, which is why I come back to 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 the, to the defense. You know, do you do a good job of of keeping Marcus Carr, keeping him in front of you? Uh, you know, that has been something here in a couple of games, whether it's Cassius Winston or or Peyton Pritchard. You know, we've seen Michigan have some issues with with those couple of guys. Can they do a better job in this game of keeping that guy out of the lane? I think that's going to be a, a big key for the Maize and Blue. Agreed. Carr had, what, 17 against Northwestern. Oturo had 19. So it's pretty clear who their go-to guys are. And and you're you're exactly spot on. Look, I'm not I'm not questioning the 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 one-on-one defense of Xavier Simpson. Right. Um, but in the Big Ten, it, it's a it's a it's a really it's a really important thing to play middle pick and roll easier. And if you watch the Houston Rockets and a lot of NBA teams, their offenses have gravitated towards that middle pick and roll because if you put three-point shooters in both corners, the middle pick and roll is really the most diverse offensive um, scheme because you've got opportunities for everybody. The roll man's going right to the front of the rim. Um, you know, Cassius Winston in the middle pick and roll is unstoppable. Yeah. And, it, and if, you, if, you do, if you do contain him, then he hits somebody in the corner for a wide-open three. I think that Minnesota has that same ability. So it's a big challenge for Michigan's pick and roll defense. Great stuff as always, Tim McCormick. Uh, just an eye for things that you can't really find uh, anywhere else when it comes to breaking down Michigan basketball. So a wealth of insight when we return. We'll be reflecting upon the Purdue and Minnesota games. Hopefully uh, we're talking about two victories uh, in Big Ten Conference play. Uh, until then, Tim, it's been a blast as always, my friend. Sounds good. Great stuff, Sam. Appreciate you. <laughs> 